rush all those. You put two running backs in the field. It's tough to deal with as an off as a defense. Breeze looking to throw. He's gonna run it. <laughs> Why not? He's in. Touchdown. All runner. All quarterbacks become runners in the red zone. And he takes a drive that started on the what seven yard line. So I became a fan of the New Orleans Saints in 1987. Uh, they were, I got to see them live at Dun Rich Stadium for the first time in 1989, a game the Saints won. John Forcades won an only 300-yard game as an NFL player in the snow. And since then, they've been here three times. So four total. And they're 4-0 in those games. And there's not a lot to say about the last one. It was a beating so bad that it almost wasn't that fun, to be honest. My brother Greg and I went to the game, and we were looking to have a good time. And when your team, when one of the teams wins the game so badly, you're not having a lot of fun. I mean, Greg was in a terrible spot, uh, but he's a great brother, and he's always there uh, with me. He's a good, good supporter of the Saints, good supporter of my passions, and I appreciate it. Him being there, there's not a lot to say, like I said, about that game. The Saints, man, oh, man, what a team. Uh, hopefully they're for real, and uh, we'll talk more about them as we go on. It's just me again today, uh, but I have a good show. Uh, speaking of the Saints, we're going to talk more about them in a second. Uh, Mike Triplett, who used to cover the team for the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, uh, now covers them for ESPN, and uh, Bill Hoffheimer from ESPN was nice enough to hook us up, and we talk about... 35 minutes about the Saints, we talk about Drew Brees and his legacy, we talk about the NFC in general, the landscape, Who can? Uh, who's a team that should scare me as a Saints fan, uh, who matches up the best against the Saints, uh, I, I'll be honest right now, I'm, I'm worried about the game against Washington this week, I'm worried every week, I'm not in a place where I'm feeling super cocky about this team like I was in 2009, there was something about that 2009 team that just had me feeling so confident. And I'm not there yet with this team. Uh, but I'm excited about them. Don't get me wrong. 7-2 and two is better than I ever would have imagined. Uh, so Mike Triplett will join us in a minute. We'll take a break and we'll come back with Mike Triplett. Also on the show today, Justin Barrasso, who writes about wrestling for Sports Illustrated, is going to join me to talk about 30 years of the Survivor Series. We don't spend a lot of time on this year's Survivor Series because... This is going up on Saturday, and the Survivor Series will be Sunday, and by the time most of you hear it, it will have passed. So we spend most of the time talking about Survivor Series in general, where it stands in the hierarchy of WWE pay-per-views. Uh, we talk about some of the great moments in Survivor Series history, like The Rock winning his first title, or uh, the screw job in Montreal, or the very first show in Cleveland in 1987. Uh, we go through a bunch of different moments in the history of the show. The first Elimination Chamber. It's fun. We do that. It's a really good time. Also on the show, a book club update. The book club. Man, the book club is suffering. Uh, we'll get to that. And then, of course, we will close the show out with one last thing. Uh, I don't have a lot to say in these intros. I just don't think there's 
much value in me going on and on. So what I'll do is I'll do some plugs real quick, and then I will get to Jeff, uh, to Mike Triplett, and then we'll do the book club, and then Justin. Uh, I wanted to mention the Lonely End of the Ring podcast. I do it with Adrian Dater, and uh, this week we debated some hot-button NHL-type topics. Should they have uh, three points for regulation wins? That kind of thing. Should they let the two-minute power plays last for two minutes, whether a team scores once or twice or three times? Should prospects play junior hockey or college hockey? I'm sure you know where I stand on that one. But the Lonely End of the Ring podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, and Adrian spent a lot of time this week asking people to please rate and review that. That helps. The algorithm on Apple Podcasts is not just based on downloads. It's also based on subscriptions and reviews and rates and all those things. So The Lonely End of the Rink is the name of the podcast. And you can find it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcast or on Twitter at Lonely Rink Pod. The other podcast I do is I'm a producer of a show called The Motivation Through Music Podcast. It's in its infancy, although it's going to take a big jump in the next week or two. Where we're going to interview Aaron Perino from The Sheila Divine. So you can find that podcast on Apple Podcast again. It's called the Motivation Through Music Podcast. And the Sportscasters, it's our seventh season, is winding down. Before you know it, we'll be on break uh, through the new year and be back for season eight, which I assume is when Don and I will really refocus on getting this show back on the rails and not just being Steve interviewing people and then needlessly talking to us for a bit uh, before those interviews. So those are the plugs. Let's take a break. We'll come right back. With Mike Triplett. Alright, our next guest covers the New Orleans Saints for ESPN Nation on ESPN.com. Uh, previously, he covered the team for the Times Picayune in New Orleans and is making his first appearance on the show today. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to Mike Triplett. Thanks for doing this, Mike. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Did you enjoy your time in Buffalo last week? Sure, of course. Uh, I actually uh, had some family up there and uh, decided to go see Niagara Falls while I was there, so I packed it all in, as much as you can pack it in Buffalo. Did you get some delicious chicken wings while you were here? I did actually. <laughs> I sure did. Where did you go? Uh, we went to the we went to the anchor bar ah. the game. And oh, you know what? We went somewhere. Uh, I shouldn't know where it was. I just went and met everybody else there. Uh, Duffs. Some place uh, that had live music and supposedly Bon Jovi uh, got their start there too. Some some somewhere the first night we were in town. Ah, never heard of it. Lived here all my life. Never yeah. heard of a Bon Jovi connection. But if someone from Buffalo <laughs> said it, I'm sure it's true. Uh I've went to four Saints and Bills games in the 30 years as a Saints fan in Buffalo, and that was probably my least favorite, although most dominant. Uh, I'll tell you what, I know it's maybe cliche at this point to say after two weeks, nobody maybe saw this coming to this level, but I will say I was optimistic to some degree. Did you feel like last week was a sign of it all coming together in some way? I mean, I know Breeze after every game has... His pressers all year has been like, ah, oh, we're not quite there yet. We're getting better. We're getting better. You think there's still 
still more for this team? Is there is is that the best game, or is it is it still more of what Breeze has been talking about? Yeah, I mean, there might be bigger and better in their future, like a playoff run, and who knows, even possibly a Super Bowl run. The way the NFC is wide open, but I can't see them playing a better game than that one. I right. mean, or, or a more lopsided game. Um, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you're never going to see a team <laughs> run for six touchdowns and at one point run 24 straight plays because they were up by so much. They started running out the clock in the third quarter, uh, and they were doing it very efficiently. The defense continued to play great. Um, yeah, that was definitely their most complete performance of the year and, and the most eye-opening because Breeze was right when he was saying that after every other game that, you know, they're, they're – Win over Detroit, they were up 45-10, and then they almost blew it. Their win at Green Bay, they started by throwing two interceptions and giving up a 50-yard touchdown run. Their win over the Bears, they you know flirted with disaster in the fourth quarter when they lost two fumbles and only won by eight. So they had not played a lot of perfect games even during their seven-game win streak, but that Buffalo one was a perfect game, and it was a game that was sort of labeled as a test for them going into Buffalo, a team that had been playing pretty well this year, especially at home, and they passed that test with uh, flying colors. Well, right, because it's kind of the game we've seen them lose over and over in the Peyton era, right? I mean, they're going down the road against a 4-0 team. I mean, it wasn't that – the weather wasn't really a factor. I mean, it was like 40 degrees. Right. There really wasn't any wind or snow or rain or anything like that. But, I mean, it was outside. It wasn't in the dome. I mean, it's all the thing. it's all the, like, the easy things to say about what trips up the Saints, right? And – I mean, they couldn't have been less tripped up in that game. I mean, that drive in the third quarter that was part of the 24 straight runs that ended with the with the Breeze uh, rushing touchdown and the Armstead, I mean, block from hell. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you could hear I don't know where you were during that play, but the section I was in, I mean, you could just hear a gasp for air when that Bills defender was rolling around <laughs> on the ground. I, I've never, I, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to, Call on too much hyperbole, but it was just, um, that drive in general. I mean, what was they, yeah. they had one third down, maybe third and one or something like that. I don't even know if it got to that point, but yeah, I don't even know if they did on that drive. Um, uh, I'd have to look. But, I mean, there was like yeah, a second I mean, and five, and then I think they might have gotten the first down on the next play. They might not even had a third down, and it was all runs. I mean, it was, I know they had a. I know, I know. Earlier in the game, going the same direction, they had a fourth and one that they decided to go for, and. Uh, um, they got that easily with like a 32-yard run by uh, right, Ingram, Ingram or whatever yeah. it was on that particular play. Yeah, Ingram. So, uh, yeah, look, I mean, asserting dominance in the run game and to do it against Buffalo, who is supposed to have a pretty good run defense uh, and has had a pretty good you know defense at other stretches of the game. Obviously, this game was as much an indictment on, on Buffalo. They obviously did not play anywhere near what they're capable of of doing so I'm sure there's issues on the other side of the ball right now too after that loss to the Jets before too um you don't normally see this in the NFL and and when you do you don't think you're going to see it against a veteran D-line like that so uh it was it was really eye-opening uh I don't know that the Saints will keep it up but it wasn't just that one game with with the run game I mean their run game has been a big part of this seven game win streak and actually after that lopsided run pass uh, second half in Buffalo, it's now an exact 50-50 split of run calls versus pass calls for the Saints during their seven-game win streak. And that is obviously something that's never happened in the Peyton Breeze era before. You know, something I think about when I hear Breeze say in his press conferences, 
which I wa- I've watched every one for, I mean, as long as they've been broadcasting on scenes.com or wherever I watch them. But uh, I think about him saying, like, we haven't played the perfect game. And sometimes I wonder if he's talking about himself and the passing game in general. Like, I still feel like there's another level there. You know, that there's still, like, him and Ginn did eventually hit that, that big bomb two games ago, but they earlier in the game missed one. You know, it seems like they're just kind of getting it perfect. And Michael Thomas sort of had his breakout game for the season last week. Uh, we haven't heard a lot from Fleener yet, although that's probably not a surprise. It feels like the passing game is almost a secret weapon of this team. Like, we're, it's almost right. like the Saints you're are... You're exactly right. No, that's the, a good way to put it. And and I think your perception is probably right about Breeze, because um, that's what he obviously thinks about first, especially fresh after a game, is, you know, the throws he missed or the plays that were probably out there that, that, that he knew were close that they didn't hit on or had to check down on. The thing is, they haven't had to force that, and that's obviously a really good thing. Um, they haven't come close to needing it in weeks. Um, right. I guess maybe during that Detroit game, it would have really helped uh, stave off some panic uh, when they were up by 35, and, and then it got down to one touchdown before the defense bailed them out. The offense really stunk in the second half of that game. That would probably be the one time they needed the offense to, to come up and do something, but other than that, they really haven't needed that, and so there is no need to force it down the field. And, yeah, all the numbers show that, you know, they are, you know, they're not throwing the ball downfield as much during this win streak. They're not taking as many deep shots. And, and Breeze is on pace to break the completion percentage record for the third time in his career. Um, right right now he's currently got the highest completion percentage in NFL history. Uh, but a lot of it is stuff that's happening with yards after the catch and checkdowns, obviously, to Alvin Kamara and uh, – you know, Michael Thomas is catching a lot of slant passes. He's catching a lot of passes. You know, they're just not all going down the field. So I, I think you're right. Like, I, I'm curious to see it. I'm curious to see if there is a game where they need to get in a shootout, if Breeze can still <laughs> have a 400-yard game and uh, and four touchdowns. And obviously we know he's still a special quarterback, but he has missed on some of those throws. I think it's a combination of, Timing and rhythm, uh, you know, I don't think it's necessarily well. We're seeing his arm drop off. It, it, there could be some of that since he's 38 years old, but he's also got a lot of new receivers on this team, including Ginn, including Kamara, um, Brandon Coleman, who's playing a bigger role. So it, there's been some timing and rhythm issues too. So I, I am curious if they ever need the passing game, what it's going to look like. I mean, on that big one he missed on the middle of the field to Ginn, didn't you feel like if that's Henderson, that's they're going to connect on that? Like, cause it was right there. It just felt like Ginn was facing the other way or something. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like he sailed at twenty yards over his head. You know? Yeah, it was weird because it was weird because yeah, it wasn't, and it wasn't that Breeze couldn't get it there. Right, it was but, right there. Uh, it was Breeze just definitely missed. I mean, yeah, Breeze admitted afterward that he was the one who missed on that. My initial thought was Ginn couldn't find it in the lights or something because it was weird to watch him spinning his head around when he was so wide open. Um, but you know, Breeze admitted later he probably should have just thrown it dead center down the middle of the field, and instead it went outside. And I don't know if it was a bad decision or if the throw didn't go where he wanted to. But it's a perfect example of of you know one of those throws that that was just up. It's sort of the highlight example, but it's happened four or five times this year. There's no doubt about it. While we're here, let's stop and talk about Breeze for a second because you know I I've been a Saints fan for 30 years and. uh 
obviously that stretch, there's been a lot of quarterbacks on the team who weren't Drew Brees, right? I mean, a, <laughs> a lot of guys who who fell short maybe of expectations one way or another, trying to be polite about it. Uh, but I think <laughs> in 2006 when he arrived, uh, I was actually lucky enough being in Buffalo. I went to Cleveland for the first game, regular season game of the Peyton and Brees airing there on opening day. And uh, I think at that point even we didn't know Saints fans or people who cover the team, whatever, didn't know what they had yet. You know, it was still – I remember that preseason. Oh, especially after that preseason. Yeah, that preseason they couldn't score. It was, it was probably the worst preseason the team's ever had. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a like, oh, no, is it the arm or, you know, what what's wrong? Why can't they get it? And uh, that wasn't exactly his breakout day either. I mean, him and Colston did have a touchdown pass, but it wasn't insane numbers. Right. Uh, but um, getting aside from what I wanted to talk about, just like – I mean, this is the last guaranteed year. I mean, I have a feeling that – it won't be the last, but you know, it's, yeah. it, this is the last one we're guaranteed of as we speak right now. Uh, this is unfair, probably, but try to talk about Drew B's legacy as a saint and a resident of New Orleans, and because I'm always beating this drum, so it's someone else who can do it. I mean, try to put into perspective what he's meant to the team on, off the field. And I mean, I know this is broad and insane and yeah, and nuts, but give it a go. No, well, I did a lot of stuff around the 10-year anniversary of him signing last year. Um, and uh, I actually talked to every Pro Football Hall of Fame voter about whether it was the best free agent signing in NFL history. And, and in their minds, he finished second to Reggie White with the Green Bay Packers. And that also included, you know, the history of, um, you know, sort of the Packers breaking the color barrier. Right, the social and, issues uh, that are associated with that. in Green Bay. And, right, sure. And, and obviously what he meant for – their defense, they're winning the Super Bowl and bringing you know greatness back to a team that had kind of been in a slump for years. So it's hard to argue that, but but those two were unquestionably one and two, and and Breeze got a ton of votes um, because of first of all he's a quarterback. You know he's had the best now eleven year stretch in just about every statistical category you can imagine in NFL history, touchdowns and uh, yards, and he's going to end up number one in both of those categories in NFL history. Um, by next year, he's going to pass uh, Peyton Manning and Farr for the most yards in NFL history. So, uh, But the wins he's brought to New Orleans, a, team, a franchise that never won, and to do it right in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, and not just Hurricane Katrina, but a very real threat that this team was maybe going to move away from right. New Orleans. Yeah. Um, you know, because they weren't selling enough tickets, and they were a small market, and Tom Benson wasn't getting a new stadium, and, you know, San Antonio wanted them, and, you know, uh, all of that... <laughs> combined with, you know, the tragedy of the hurricane. And then a year later, Drew Brees comes to town and then in a championship game. And then for the last 10 years, they've been one of the best offenses in NFL history. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And then, yes, of course, he's done a lot in the community and he's embraced that. He, he wanted to come here and be part of that and lives right in the heart of, of New Orleans and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not enough good things you can say about it, but a lot of that, it seemed like the past. I mean, there was this growing swell during the three straight seven and nine seasons and him getting his, he was the first $20 million a year quarterback. And now he's like the 15th highest paid quarterback in the league. But he, uh, um, you know, there was a lot of sentiment like, Oh, let's move on. You know, we're stalling, you know, let's, uh, let's let breeze go and, uh, draft a quarterback. I think for him to have this Renaissance uh, or the team to have this Renaissance, I should say, if he adds somehow one more Super Bowl run or 
you know, one or two more great playoff runs into the mix uh, along with that, um, you know, it's over. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's already going to be the greatest player in Saints history, but it's going to be one of the most successful runs with any player in any team in in, in NFL history. If uh, if he's got a, a few more years of, of championship caliber play in him, yeah, I know those people you you spoke of just now existed, but I, I want to promise you, I wasn't one of them. I've always said I'm going to be the last one. <laughs> I'm going to be the last one off of that train because I don't think it's hyperbole for me to say that this guy has literally made all of my sports dreams come true. You know, everything that I never thought would happen as a Saints fan has happened on the strength of his arm, really, and his poise and his maturity. You know, I mean, just, I mean, how many Saints quarterbacks have walked home from practice with a, <laughs> with a train of kids following him and he orders Jimmy John's sandwiches for the group? You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I just well, think, here's what else you can give him credit for. If, if you do want to. If you do want to make this like the ultimate celebration of Drew Brees, oh, I'd be the glad other thing to. about all those people, yeah, the, the the other thing about all those people who were like clamoring, let's move on from Drew Brees during the swoon. The other best thing about having a quarterback like him, and obviously the Patriots are going on about twenty years of success run too, and the Packers is they haven't wasted a draft pick or a free agent dollar on a quarterback in twelve years either. So. All you know, although everybody loves to say, "Oh, they're wasting all the salary cap space on him," you know, it's pretty normal to pay a quarterback that much money <laughs> right. nowadays. Waste but look at their unquote. defense now, and they're doing it with you know, first round draft pick Cam Jordan, first round draft pick Kenny Vaccaro, first round draft pick Marshawn Lattimore, first round draft pick um, Sheldon Rankins. Uh, you know, in addition to the offensive line that's been rebuilt with first round draft pick Andrew Pete and first round draft pick Ryan Ramchek. So. There's a lot of teams that can't get right because every three years they're trading up into the top five and drafting another quarterback that doesn't pan out. And and so for the Saints to not have to worry about that position for so long has also helped them, you know, have that long run that they had for a while and then now be able to rebuild as they've been able to rebuild. Yeah, I mean, Jim Kelly walked off the field after a loss to Jacksonville in the playoffs in 1995 and the Bills still haven't replaced him. You know, it's yeah. it's very yeah. rare. You know, yeah, the Saints have had. I've always written that the Saints have had one Hall of Fame quarterback in their fifty-year history. Don't think that they can just say, "Okay, we're ready to move on from Breeze. We'll take Deshaun Watson." It doesn't right. work that way. I mean, very <laughs> rarely do you go from Manning to Luck or from Favre to Rogers, right? I mean, those are right. And Young, I guess, in Montana, those are the ones that jump out. But I mean, that. Yep. Uh, we got to the draft. We'll end on Breeze. Uh, one more thing about him when we end, but. Uh, we got to the draft, and the 2006 class is obviously one that propelled the team from a 3-13 and to things we'd never seen before, like first-round buys and, you know, NFC Championship games, uh, and were part of Super Bowls uh, eventually. Uh, Super Bowl. Uh, but um, this one has got the look of maybe being up there, right? What I mean, this class oh, no is question. unbelievable. And, and- you know, they always say you need to wait three years before you can properly grade a draft class. You don't have to wait. I no. Mean, <laughs> you, like, you can use any hyperbole you want. Now, the one thing is you just mentioned the 2002 class. So I have not yet written a word like this could be the best draft class in Saints history because that's an incredibly high standard. Right. The 2006 Saints were one of the greatest draft classes in NFL history. So, so it, 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 you know – 
in any other circumstance, you could probably say this looks like the best draft class the Saints have ever had, and it's not going to be because um, that we won't know for 10 years. We need to see how many of each class gets in the Hall of Fame before we figure that one out. But um, but there's no question. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. And Mel Kuyper just put something out yesterday where he is doing a big board, like ranking this year's rookies. And he had a Saints player at one, three, and five on that list, which is just incredible. Um, and that's uh, Marshawn Latimer at cornerback at number one, Alvin Kamara, the running back at three, and, and Ryan Ramchak, right. the right tackle at number five. And then Marcus Williams, who's starting for them at, at free safety, wasn't on that list, but maybe the he's top been 15 huge too. Anyway. So yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's really incredible. And, and Latimer on defense, like we had to do a midseason MVP, and I gave it to Cam Jordan because he's just playing so good. I think he should be in the running for it defensive player of the year in the NFL. But, you know, Cam Jordan's sort of been a known commodity. I think he's a little underrated nationally, but he's been great every year for the Saints. What Lattimore has done at cornerback is certainly the most important thing that's happened to this team because having a number one cornerback is huge, and and it just makes your whole defense better. It it allows you to take more chances when you blitz or, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. If you can trust your corner, uh, you're in really, really good shape. And he's been playing as well as any corner in the league. I was joking with my brother. We were watching the draft, and uh, when the when uh, the Chiefs made their pick, and Lat- and, and Lattimore was there, it was like I think I turned to him. I said, "I never woke up today and dreamed that this guy would be here. Like this is the guy. I guarantee this is the guy. I know it. Like wow." And uh, a couple of days ago, I was like, "Remember when, we were do- when I was doing fist pumps after the Lattimore pick?" He's like, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I should have been doing backflips <laughs> because he. I mean, who's the best corner in Saints history? Who is it?" It, they're, they're, yeah, no, that's been talked about before, too, and there's not, like, that's not a traditional great position for them. Now, when they won the Super Bowl, a big reason was because Jabari Greer and Porter, and Tracy Porter yeah. were both playing terrific that year, and, right. and Greer all year long might have been the second-best player on the team. He might have been better than Darren Charper that year, um, who had all the interceptions, and then Porter obviously was phenomenal in the, in the postseason. And then when they were great in 2011, same thing, Jabari Greer. Um, or no, I guess 2013, it was still Greer and Porter in 11. And then 13, when their defense played so well, Keenan Lewis and Jabari Greer were both playing really well for them. So they've had very good cornerback play, and it's always been important to their success. But throughout their history, you know, I, I think uh, Dave Weimer and Dave Witzel, you know, they're they're considered probably the best. But it's certainly not a position where they've got a lot of decorated guys and uh, Lattimore's well on his way, right? I, I wasn't. I didn't say that to imply that he was the best ever yet, but I don't think. Right. I don't think his journey uh, to that spot is as daunting as <laughs> Let's maybe let him turn some teams. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give him time, <laughs> but uh, I brought that up only to one highlight how excited I am and B to kind of give perspective to other people that this yeah. is not a position of. And I've been. I was a huge Keenan Lewis fan. I thought he was great for for us when we were hurting in a lot of spots. Uh, around the field um, on the defense. Yeah. But here, what, uh, to, to take the Saints-Buffalo connection full circle, this kind of dawned on me last week. So it was the Bills who had the 10th pick in the draft. Right, made that trade. And they obviously needed a corner because mm-hmm. they drafted Tredavious White later in the round. Um, so they very easily could have and maybe should have taken um, Marshawn Lattimore at number 10, but instead they trade down with the Kansas City Chiefs who take Pat Mahomes. 
So if it happens that way, if the Bills take Marshawn Lattimore and don't make that trade with the Chiefs, the Saints, Saints would have taken Pat right. Mahomes at yep. 11. Mm-hmm. Now they say they would have taken Lattimore ahead of Mahomes, and I believe them. They had Lattimore like top three on their board or something like that. But but um, but Mahomes was next on the list. So how different does this season play out if not only do they not have Lattimore, they've got Drew Brees' heir apparent breathing down his neck, and they're probably not a 7-2 and two team right now. It, it, it'd be completely different. It'd be really strange to think about the what if there. Let's hit a couple real quick ones, and then I'll let you go on a Brees thought. We'll do have some fun with Breeze at the end. Uh, what what is the kind of team or team that you think is the one that matches up the best against the Saints or the worst for the Saints? Like, what is the kind of team you see out there, uh, or a specific one if you'd prefer, uh, that will give this team the most trouble? Do you think? No, it's a great question because. You don't see a lot of them on the schedule. There's not a lot of, well, we'll find out about the Saints when they play blank. Uh, I thought I thought when they were going to go to Green Bay, that would be the case, and then Aaron Rodgers got hurt, right. and they didn't have to face him. Obviously, New England came in and torched them in Week 2, and they're a different kind of team. I'd love to see New England come back into the Superdome um, you know, later in this season and see what the Saints have become. The Atlanta Falcons obviously have that potential to be that kind of team the way they played last year. They're not playing like that now, but the Saints do have two games still to play against Atlanta, which will probably be really big, and then they've got Carolina at home in a couple weeks. So the Atlanta-Carolina games will be huge. Next week, the Saints go to St. Lu- to Los Angeles to Los right. Angeles to face the Rams, and obviously that's a potent offense that will test their defense with the creative offensive coordinator and, and head coach and Sean McVay and the Rams have a good defense. So that'll be a huge one. But, I mean, if you're looking further ahead, I think the the established teams that they might see in the playoffs, the Seahawks, if they get their act together, could be a big test. If they have to go to Philadelphia in January, it could be a big test. And Minnesota, who beat them in week one pretty bad, um, you know, obviously is not going anywhere. So, you know, they're, they're eventually going to have to face – you know, the best of the best in the NFC if they want to get where they're going. But, uh, um, you know, there's not a ton of those teams that you're like, well, how are the Saints going to get past this team uh, left on the regular season schedule? Sports guests are here finishing up with Mike Triplett from ESPN Nation, ESPN.com. Covers the Saints for them. Uh, previously covered them for the Times Picky Union in New Orleans. Uh, all right, let's go to the breeze thing. We'll close on this and I'll let you go as I know you have other things to do today. I'll be honest, every single time Saints game ends, and it was especially true in the stands last week, uh, I have this second or two of sadness that, you know, that's one less. That's one less time Breeze is going to be my the quarterback of my favorite team. And, you know, on Sunday it was a different feeling. It was like, is that the last time I'm going to see him play live as a Saint? Um so instead of uh, kind of reflecting sadly, I was interested to hear if you could give me, uh, if tomorrow you had to write the story of Drew Brees, the New Orleans Saint, and you had to think of two or three uh, plays or moments in his career, uh, let's talk about them for a second here now, because that's real fun to me. All right. Well, first of all, my only prediction with Breeze is you won't see him play in Buffalo ever again because it's eight years right. before they come back. <laughs> Unfortunately, even the best that, of predictions, yeah, right? I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's still the quarterback for three or four or five more years. I mean, especially if they've got a run game in defense. He's the kind of high completion percentage smart quarterback that could be a 42-year-old quarterback for a team with a run game in defense. So you don't 
necessarily need to worry, I don't think, just yet. But um, for purposes of this exercise, you know, it is funny. We've done some lists over the years of the greatest plays in Saints history, and Brees doesn't really have a play that's on there. Um, right, because it's a punt you know, block, it's an interception. and streaks and seasons. Of, right. Obviously, the one that stands out to me is that drive in the Super Bowl um, where they came, they were down in the 10-3 to in the first half, or 10 nothing early in the first half, and comes out in the third quarter, and, and they go on that touchdown drive, and I think it was eight straight completions to seven different receivers or seven straight completions. That's to right. Yeah, my, that's including the, the two-point conversion to Lance Moore. I mean, it was just a vintage breeze moment, and that entire playoff run, I think he had something like eight touchdowns and no interceptions, and his, his 2009 playoffs as a whole were phenomenal uh but that drive in in the in the super bowl was was the signature one the td was to shockey and the shockey. two-point conversion yep. was to lance yeah, more but i think he hit everybody on the roster uh, on the way there so <laughs> um and then uh just that that entire 2011 season when he beat um for, at the time he broke dan marino's record but uh it's since been passed but the saints had the most yards in NFL history that year, and they had that was the year of Jimmy Graham's explosion and Darren Sproles' explosion. I'm not. That's the team that probably should have won the Super Bowl if they didn't have five turnovers in San Francisco, and and they still came back from that. Yeah, they spotted them 17 <laughs> points in that game. They spotted unbelievable, them 17 points, unbelievable yeah. game. But yeah. of course, Breeze threw for his 400 in that game, and Jimmy Graham had his like 160 in that game. I, I'm. I don't think they get talked a lot about it, probably because they didn't win a Super Bowl. But, you know, I think they are up there. That that 2011 Saints offense might be the best regular, you know, the best one single season offense in NFL history. At least it's on a very short list. And if the damn defense just could have stopped Alex Smith one more time, they would have got to play at home <laughs> against an average Giants team the next week and then gotten to take their chances against the Patriots. But uh, yep. let me throw you out a couple that I love. Uh, one is the... Devery Henderson touchdown on Monday night against the Patriots where no one else is in the screen. Uh, just because I... Well, yeah, and I will tell you what, that whole game, I probably should have mentioned that game, he had a perfect passer rating in that game. Tom Brady comes into the dome and, yep. and Breeze has, what, five touchdown passes and, and a, a perfect passer rating of 158.3 at some website um, compared it to all the other perfect passer ratings of all time and claimed that it was the best of all the perfect, like the best quarterback performance in NFL history. <laughs> I'll take it. I I agree. Uh, just that play, that game in general, I mean, remember the shot at the end where Belichick and Brady are standing next to each other, the ESPN cameras caught this, and they just have this like look of bewilderment on their face. And I mean, that, that play, <laughs> I remember I just stood up in my living room and was like, Okay, I believe now. You know, because I was skeptical. Even <laughs> that to that was, point. That was a really defining moment right. for the Saints that year when they torched the Patriots. Yeah, so I got that one. is really high up. I love that play. Uh, obviously, the first touchdown pass to Colson in Cleveland because I was there is up there for me in 2006. There's a play. Kind of, this is kind of an unknown one you might not even remember, but the last time the Bills were in the Dome, because obviously the Bills and Saints games are always uh, big for me because I wouldn't be able to deal with the the, the I, twice in my life it's happened ninety two and ninety eight where I had to deal with the people around me after losses but uh, he made a play on a third down and ended up a touchdown to Kenny Stills where he rolled out to the right and just dropped a just dropped a dime in there and they kind of pulled away at that point that that's one I love that sticks out and uh, the um, 
the 98 yard touchdown pass to Cooks, even though they end up losing that game somehow to the Raiders, uh, stands out. It sets a really cool play. Oh, and there was a long touchdown to Henderson against the 49ers in a game I was at the Dome. We could go on and on, really. I mean, how many? Yeah. Well, here, how about how about one that, that's out of character? The, uh, um, but a defiant, you know, something he's done a lot uh, when they were in Miami. And right, he dunked it. Well, season and, and well, first he first he convinced John Payton to go for it. I think on fourth and inches, and he dove over the pile for the for the touchdown dive, and then he dunked it afterwards. So his his leaping ability and his determination on that, in that series. <laughs> when you look at the thirteen games in a row they won, it's like how did they win that one? How did they win that Washington game? I mean, that's like the Meacham play, <clears throat> right? But crazy. Yeah, now that had a couple of the all-time moments, and he had a deep TD pass to, to Meacham. To tie it. Like, I, yeah. I remember writing that once, that yeah, Meacham had the incredible, you know, it was an interception or a fumble that he lost. I can't even remember what it was at the beginning, but then he strips the ball back from the Redskins player and scores the touchdown. But And then the Redskins need to miss like a 22-yard right. field goal. Right, and they do. Uh, to force overtime. Yeah. But then what the – what what I always remember about Breeze on that play or the Saints offense that year was after all those incredible things happened, they still needed to go like 80 yards and score a touchdown. And that part was no problem. It was like a 56 yard touchdown pass to beat him. Like, Oh yeah, this part's easy. Right. <laughs> I remember saying to my brother, whoever's watching with me, like, well, I know they're not going to let Breeze beat him over the top. So we're going to have to dink and dunk our way down. And like two seconds later, it was a beautiful double move by Meacham actually. And yeah. he, cause he was wide open. He, he burned whoever was covering him with a beautiful double move. But, yeah, that – I mean, that season, we could go all through all 13 games and probably come up with a play that Breeze made that was like, oh, wow, this is really fun. So, uh, Mike, you're on Twitter at Mike Triplett. And um, sir, ESPN.com for your coverage of the team. Uh, have you uh, have you had – have you had one of your questions this year um, – in a Peyton press conference, ended with a two-word response and a next question. Have you uh, have you had that yet? Oh, I'm sure, but <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to think of which one. Um, I know that I had one when when I asked about Kenny Vaccaro, and I threw in, uh, "Are you are you impressed with how Kenny Vaccaro has uh, bounced back from being benched earlier in the year?" And he didn't like the use of the term being benched. And he said, that's a good topic for ESPN. But that's <laughs> yeah, not how it happened. I remember that. <laughs> I remember, you know, because when I'm watching the press conferences, I almost can never hear who's asking the questions because ha- the Saints haven't figured out that they should mark right. that part yet. So I have to try to find clues to who might have asked it. And he obviously t- yeah. tipped that one off by mentioning ESPN. <laughs> ESPN. But this was really fun. And I think that someday when... I'm going to save your email if that's okay. I know it'll be okay with Bill. But uh, someday when it is over for Breeze and uh, maybe Peyton too if it's simultaneous, but especially Breeze, I want to bring you back and let's just for half an hour talk about these random plays that come to mind over this incredible run if, if you're up for that. I'd be up for it. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, Mike. This was fun. All right. Have a good one. All right, I want to thank uh, Mike Triplett for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate that. Quick book club update. I don't know what's going on with uh, with authors in 2017. Uh, I've been promoting the last few weeks that Jack McCollum has a new book and that Jack McCollum was going to be working with us. 
and I set something up with Jack McCollum and I waited and I waited and I never heard anything and I never got a book and I was promoting the book and I was going along like it was going to be a part of this book club and that we would have Jack on at some point to talk about it. And I sent him an email saying I've been promoting the book and encouraging the book, but I haven't got a book. And if he's interested in coming out and chatting about it, I could buy an ebook. Uh, that'd be fine. I didn't need one. Uh, but just to let me know if he changed his mind about being a part of it. And he wrote back saying, will do, Stephen. My PR folks haven't been on top of things. Thanks. I don't know what that means, but I am done hounding the guy. Like, I am just past the point. This show is just not popular enough, maybe, for some people. I don't know what it is, but I am past the point of begging people to allow me to promote their stuff. You know? If Howard Stern writes another book, and me begging him is a way to get him on the show, I'll do it. I did it with Artie Lang, for example. But I'm just not doing that for Jack McCollum. We've already made one of his books, the book club, book of the year, Dream Team. I love it. I have so much respect for him. He's one of the best NBA writers of all time. But he doesn't need us. That's the truth. He doesn't. Uh, So... Maybe he can't be bothered. I understand. I understand. He always responds. He's a nice guy. Uh, this is not a trashing of him. Like it was of Alan Steppenwall a few weeks ago. It's not that. I totally understand. Next week, maybe on the book club, I'll recommend some books for Christmas gifts. It'll be post-Black Friday, so I'll recommend some stuff that you might... If there's someone on your your list that, that wants a book, uh, I'll give you some ideas. And then, who knows after that? The book club will never go away because it's just too important in terms of getting guests, but it's certainly at a crossroads. All right, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back with Justin Barrasso. Our next guest is from Boston. And is a graduate of Boston College. He writes a weekly This Week in Wrestling column for SI.com. It's out every Wednesday. He's making his second appearance on the show today. A Warren Sportscaster is welcome to Justin Barrasso. Justin, thanks for coming back a second time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's it's pretty big, too. I know the Survivor Series kind of gets overlooked. I think it's probably the fifth biggest pay-per-view now in, in the WWE, but... Uh... Money in the Bank probably passed it. But, really? Uh, it's interesting. Ever, and it's it's a big show with a lot of history, so uh, grateful you brought me, up, brought, me, brought me back on. I appreciate it. I was going to say it was kind of like the NHL of the Big Four, but you're saying it's the MSL, maybe. Or MLS. I think Money in the Bank MLS, I mean. definitely surpassed it. Money in the Bank is such a fun pay-per-view. I think it definitely took a hit last year that it wasn't interbrand. You know, it was only Oh, yeah, year, that was terrible. Smackdown. Yeah, but I think that's a big uh, this past year. I think that it's that's definitely surpassed our series. So this year's card is loaded. Yeah, I I have been following the card. I'm going to make it in, so I'll give you a real quick rundown. So I was started in about right about before WrestleMania 2 was the first stuff I can remember watching. I'm from Buffalo, I'm Northeastern kids, so that was my that was my territory. Uh, I watched straight through until probably around WrestleMania 10, maybe a little bit past that. Drifted off briefly, came back by 14. Probably stuck it out until 
What number was 2000? What was Wrestle? It was called WrestleMania 2000. What number it was, was called that? 17, I think. So probably 17 was Houston, right? Yes. That was the last one I watched live, and then I came back for 30. And I loved I 30. Both, like 14 and 30. Yeah, I loved 30. Like, what a great show. And it got me back on, enjoying it for a bit. And I got to the point where I was becoming a wrestling fan I didn't like. One of these people who could never watch a show and enjoyed it, always was complaining about this booking decision or that booking decision. Uh, you know, one of the main reasons I bailed the second time was the brand split. I hated that idea. I'll always hate that idea. And I discovered that I was more of a fan of wrestling uh, as a general sense and the idea of like, like I love 80s and 90s wrestling. Like I love what I grew up on and there's a world of, there's the network has all the shows, there's the YouTube, obviously, there's people writing books, there's documentaries, there's podcasts. Podcasts has been huge in this. I've just kind of, to use a generic internet term, I've kind of pivoted to being a a, a kind of a retro wrestling fan. Like, I haven't followed the product as much. Now, I still am a, an observer subscriber, so I kind of keep up through reading and, uh, you know, f- I still follow. I just don't watch as much. I, I spend most of my time consuming wrestling. Uh I think doing something smart and that's consuming stuff I enjoy instead of something I don't and complaining about it. Absolutely. And a lot of times too, the complaint is, you know, you, you, you put all this time in, if you watch Raw and SmackDown, I mean, that's enough, right? You can watch NXT as well, but you watch Raw and SmackDown, that, that's five hours of content a week. That's hard to do. I think for anybody, right. kid or adult. And uh, a lot of weeks you ask yourself, well, you know, what am I, if I didn't watch tonight, what would I have missed? And that's not a good thing, you know. I think a lot of times that leads to criticisms and complaints. And, and, and Roz, you know, that, that third hour is an albatross, right? I mean, that's how do you how do you consistently put out a three hour product um, every week that's compelling and, and you know is is must see viewing, appointment viewing. It's really really hard to do. I think SmackDown's got a better flow because uh, it's now shorter. But yeah, I, I agree with you. And if you look, it's funny you mentioned that because if you look at the Survivor Series in terms of kind of that retro pay per view with a lot of history to it. I yeah. think Sunday show is going to be very, very good. But kind of one of the more underrated pay-per-views in WWE history, uh, you know, again, it had the rematch. Now it was in a multi-man tag, elimination match. It had the rematch of Hogan-Andre from WrestleMania three. Right, right off the bat in 87, yeah. Yeah, and I love the story, the history of the Survivor Series, too. I mean, it's it's textbook, Vince McMahon. You know, Starcade's finally, finally building an audience. Starcade 86 which was in Greensboro, you know, set such high records for Turner Home Entertainment and on videotape. It sounds like we're talking, you know, prehistoric history when the dinosaurs were on the earth with, with videotapes. But Star Trek 86 did so well, and it was one of the, you know, industry standards until WrestleMania 3 came around. WrestleMania 3 obviously redefines what it is to be a successful wrestling show at the Pontiac Silverdome and, um, you know, yeah, it's my number one show. Gonna, That's my number one show. They're going to tell you 100,000, you know, 200,000 people there, 93,000 people. But, yeah, a great show. And then that sets the backdrop of Survivor Series 87. The first Survivor Series is WrestleMania 3 because Vince has all this kind of negotiating power. So when they try to bump Starcade off pay-per-view because you dealt individually with cable, ca- cable companies back then, you know, Vince put 
Stargate was announced Thanksgiving night, which made sense because they, Atlanta always had Thanksgiving shows uh, that night. Uh, but they moved Stargate to Chicago to kind of widen their reach a little bit, the, the, the Crockett's, which in theory was smart. Uh, Vince had his pay-per-view that night. Starcade moved to early evening so you could watch both shows on Thanksgiving. And then McMahon lowered the boom and said to the cable company, if you, if you orders, if you carry Starcade, don't get WrestleMania. You can't carry WrestleMania four, right? And that's, I mean, it's a knockout punch. It's ruthless. And then just things unraveled because now you're out of the Carolinas and you're out of Atlanta and Virginia and your home base. If you're, you know, for the Crockett's for the NWA, so you're, you're alienating fans, upsetting fans. So the show didn't do well. Survivor Series did, and you know, obviously gave a huge momentum push to Vince McMahon and company to uh, to give another blow to uh, the Crockett's. And that was the start of a, a battle back and forth, right? I mean, WrestleMania Five. I know uh, that the NWA Crockett ran a, uh, a class of champions, right? Um, yeah, nobody talks about the the '80s wrestling wars, right? Yeah, it, it existed. Just like in the 90s, a very different set of circumstances in the 80s, but definitely both of them fighting for, for their lives at times, fighting for supremacy at other times. Yeah, very, very, a lot of parallels can be made between the, uh, the 80s and 90s, for sure. I'm looking forward to something to wrestle uh, this week, tackling the 87 show, because they have talked a little bit in other shows about, you, you know, about the story you just told. I think they told uh, to some degree and, and some of the background, but I'm excited to hear what Bruce... I mean, this is Bruce's first pay-per-view because he got there after three. So this is his first right. pay-per-view with the company. Uh, so I'm interested to see uh, what his perspective is because it is unique. I mean, you figure his perspective is basically could only be really shared by Pat Patterson or Vince McMahon, really. And it's so interesting to hear, you know, like you look back at the, the 90s wrestling, the Monday Night Awards, and how Vince would, you know, complain and criticize and, really call it unfair that he's forced to fight a battle with Ted Turner with seemingly endless pockets. And how's he going to compete with that? It, it, they were, they were, un, they were, they were broadcasting li- live and the results of Tate's Raws. They were, you know, Vince thought they were very unethical. The funny thing is you go back a decade earlier, this <laughs> is doing all that stuff to his opponent, right. that his competition. It's funny when the shoe was under the foot, it was, you know, unethical and, it was crossing the line, but uh, in 1987, he had no problem trying to, to freeze out Jim Crockett promotions and, and their Starcade event. The attendance on two early WWF pay-per-views fascinate me. One is the Chicago portion of WrestleMania two. totally bombed. I mean, I think they had like 9,000, which blows me away how that happened. We can talk about that some other time. The other one is Survivor Series 89. Where they actually, I thought they put on a great show, or 88, I'm sorry. They put on a great show in 87, in, in uh, outside of Cleveland there. Yep. And they come back in 88 with maybe even a little bit of a better show, and nobody came. They got, what, seven or 8,000 less the second time around. And I think that that was the beginning. Of, again, Thanksgiving's funny, because you wouldn't think it would be a big wrestling night. But it's interesting that they, they eventually made the change to Thanksgiving Eve. 89-90 was back on, back on Thanksgiving night. Right, the first Thanksgiving four. Eve, but, yeah. Right. But it's interesting that it doesn't seem in theory like it would be a good wrestling night. And uh, it, it is interesting, too. But I think it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, too, WrestleMania 2 
definitely took a step back. Uh, Star Series 88 took a step back, but they, they ultimately, you know, the damage was done at that point to the competition. So it, it didn't matter so much. I mean, obviously you, you need a good buy rate and you need people buying the, the VHS tapes, but it is interesting to look back and see the, uh, the history. And then you look at 89, which is interesting too, because that 89 sort of the ascension, they're trying to build the ultimate warrior and they, they close the show with, you know, warriors team versus, uh, Andre the giants team. And that's fascinating too, because if you look at the, the that's 1989, you go two decades later, you have Shawn Michaels in the main event and a triple threat with Cena and triple H that's 89 to 09. Now granted he wasn't the, the featured piece of that 89 match, but to be in a main event two decades apart is pretty remarkable. Again, there's so many fascinating aspects and layers of the survivor series. Yeah. Just, uh, to, to, put some numbers on what we were saying uh, according to wikipedia we'll take them at their word the 87 show at the richfield coliseum drew 21,300 that's a huge crowd and 88 drew 13.5 so a huge huge, yeah, huge difference uh you talked a little bit about them then in 89 they move it to one of their favorite buildings the rosemont horizon and uh somewhere in here uh, probably this show is one where it's kind of the start of maybe even the next show, but these two for sure is the start of people turning on Hogan to some degree, certainly in retrospect. Now, I don't know how much it actually happened back then, but when you listen to uh, the retro podcasts or you read people looking back, they love to point at these shows as sort of when they they turn their back on Hogan because he always had to hog the spotlight. And we learned from Bruce that uh, these Survivor Series shows, these early ones, is is where the uh, the birth of Hogan must pose. Uh, the Vince McMahon uh, supposedly said Hogan must pose at the end of these shows. But when you look back at them, do you find Hogan's role at the end, maybe certainly 87, maybe even 89, do you, do you look at it as, as um, intrusive at all? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think that obviously it's a different landscape than two. And Hogan was their draw. So even a match where he might lose, or he did lose in 87 to Andre's team, I think you still want to send the crowd home on a happy note. It was just such a different era of pro wrestling. Uh, that, And, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if the crowd, like you said, in retrospect, may have been turning on him a little bit. Of course, everyone wants to see the ascension, the rise, uh, and they'll knock you when you're on top. But I don't know. I think that, you know, looking back, they were the right decision. I mean, you, you ride your hot hand. And I think that's what they did with Hogan. I don't know if they ever could have imagined the longevity out of that character. Uh, he's, you know, still relevant in some ways in 2017. But, um, no, I think I think looking back, it was the right call. Are you, like me, before we get too far away from it, a huge fan of the tag team matches in the first two? With the 20 guys? Around, how fun are those matches? Yeah. Uh, Conquistadors always seem to do well. I always seem to shine in those two. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I mean, all the talent in them. I mean, the teams that went over. I mean, the first one was the Killer Bees and were one of the teams, right? I mean, yeah. just not the, you know, it's not like the Hart Foundation ever won that. Interesting. Demolition didn't win it, obviously, because they set up the uh, the angle with Fuji in that match. And you can clearly, like, I, I know it's it's someone's perspective, right? But like Bret Hart's book, which I think was really, really well done. But if people have questioned it, you know, the authenticity of certain chapters in certain sections. But I think Brett, Brett shares a lot of truth. There weren't always big plans for him or the Hart Foundation when you have matches where the Killer Bees are going over. You know, so if they 
Um, especially the Bulldogs in there. You have so many different major teams. It's interesting uh, to kind of see where they were. And obviously they don't always get it right. And uh, some of those cases they didn't. But, yeah, really, really interesting to see that some really iconic teams were, were passed over for uh, for Jeff and Jim Brunzel and, and B. Brian Blair. Just one time and one time only, they did a gimmick where the survivors from the individual matches ended up facing off in a match later. That was at the 1990 event in Hartford. This stunk, right? This was the shits. I mean, first of all, it's weird that, like, it just, it, it created an awkward thing where, oh, well, of course the heels will be on the heels and the, the faces will be on the faces and we'll do another you know, elimination match. Like I kind of, I think I expected maybe a battle Royal or something. I don't know what I expected in the buildup, but this was weird. And I'm glad they only did it one time. I think. Yeah. And it sets yourself up too, for like Rick Martell had a really good showing. And then if you're, you're going against the Hogan warrior team, which what had Cheeto Santana as well. Yeah. If you're going yep. against that team, you know, so it, it kind of derails whatever momentum you had taking to that pay-per-view, which I think is why we never saw it again. As a kid, I'll be honest, I loved it. You know, I, I remember my brother and I couldn't make sense of the gobbledygooker. Right. Uh, for good reason. <laughs> but, um, I mean, 90, was it crazy? Yeah, a lo- lot of memories. That's actually, um, if you remember, too, that's Bret Hart lost a brother that weekend. Right, that yeah, week, that's in that his book. weekend. Yeah. And uh, Piper really puts Hart over on the broadcast from commentary, which was a big part of Hart, you know, kind of making slowly, you know, out of the tag team and, you know, the, that putting that seed in your planting that seed in your mind that, that he could be a single star. Also, the, the Undertaker's debut. Uh, you thought we finally had, which again as a kid seemed so cool, uh, even though maybe it was a missed opportunity. You had the Road Warriors and, and Demolition uh, in a match together. There were so many, you know, and that, that kind of all warrior team of the Road Warriors, uh, the Tex, Terry, excuse me, Terry Von Erich, uh, the Modern Day Warrior, yeah, the, Modern Day Warrior and the Ultimate Warrior. So. Some cool stuff too at the time. Maybe it didn't age well, but I remember watching that at the time and thinking it was. Uh, again, that's the that's the tricky thing about wrestling. I, I mean, it's it's such a you know pro basketball. They're trying to pro hockey, football, or baseball. They're trying to make the best game possible. Where in wrestling, you're appealing to eight year olds and thirty eight year olds, and you know, mm-hmm. in between and beyond. So it's such a unique field where I think that a lot of older fans, you know, we critique it and say, well, that wasn't. You know, what was that? But we haven't been the we haven't been the priority in terms of audience for decades. So it's yeah, it's such it's such a unique field. But ninety was for a lot of reasons. Ninety was uh, really memorable, and I, I guarantee they had no no designs on the Undertaker being this iconic, incredible character. They probably thought it was this cool character, something to do with you know Calloway. But man, was that special! Right, and then in ninety one, they break format a little bit and have a title match, and Undertaker wins his first championship. Yeah, with, and then and that had to have been right. Had to have been setting up Hogan Flair, which I thought was a really interesting part of the thirty for thirty. The Flair Hogan uh, thirty for thirty, right? They kind of hinted and discussed that there was a WrestleMania and that had to be the plan. We still haven't heard the reason. I actually a couple things obviously makes you know makes sense why they wouldn't have that match. It probably wasn't the match Flair wanted, but he must have known in that he wasn't going sixty minutes in that match. Probably wasn't going over in that match. But also, Hogan, Hogan's leaving the company, and they're teasing his retirement, so it, all of a sudden it made sense maybe to do something else, and, and Savage made a lot of sense. But um, it's funny that they, they, they whiffed on a Hogan Flair WrestleMania when clearly at the Survivor Series they were building toward it. 
And you know what? We mentioned it a second ago, too. They also whiffed by never having Demolition versus uh, the Road Warriors at a Mania either. Yeah, I, I don't know how you don't do that. Even if you have it with Crush, I don't know. It just doesn't. Or that could have been a SummerSlam match, uh, SummerSlam ninety. If you remember, LOD interferes in the right. One of my favorite SummerSlam called. matches, actually, that best two out of three against the Hearts. That's a that's a really fun match. Great match, yeah. And it seems and to I set up the, this the big feud. Taking in and out of the ring, you know, right. uh, acting, which is funny because they look nothing alike. No, but heaven uh, <laughs> forbid the referee would catch on to that. Right, and they seem to again. It's another time where it seemed to set up a feud uh, that kind of never really materialized. Yeah, a couple they, of them. You know, it's funny too. And uh, another one too is one of my favorite parts of the '91 Survivor Series. You mentioned that that's the uh, Taker wins the belt from from Hogan with the flare interference with the steel chair. If you remember, that's in the middle of that incredible feud between Jake Roberts and Randy Savage. Right. And they take Jake off the card. They take Robert, they remove Roberts from the card, you know, storyline purposes. And he, he cuts uh, either an awful sweater or an awful shirt, dress shirt, like a really ugly dress shirt he's wearing. He cuts his interview with Gene Okerlund in front of the live audience. And um, it's just, I mean, who knows what Jake was on at the time. If he was, if he was straight, if he was clean. But Jake in his darkest there and talked about how uh, he spoke with God and, God said he doesn't like you to Oakland. Just a, I mean, it was it was Jake Roberts at his peak in terms of that character, in terms of that that evil, brooding, uh, dark, menacing character building that feud with Savage, which that ended on like an, on a Saturday night show. That didn't end on a pay per view either. So funny how the times were different, where the payoffs weren't always on pay per view. Right, and they they did uh, a couple days later have a match at Tuesday in Texas, which was part of the, uh, you know, it's like we bought. Survivor Series, and they set up a bunch of matches for three days later. Hey, if you want to pay more, we'd <laughs> love we'd love you to come back Tuesday night. And the funny thing about that show was it really didn't do anything. Bret Hart beat Skinner, so you're, you're sort of elevating the hitman a little bit. Uh, Savage beat Roberts. Right. But if I remember that match correctly, That's right. yep. Roberts, Roberts, you know, Savage won the battle, Roberts in the war. Roberts beat him down after the match, so there was no, there was no you know, conclusion or no clarity to that feud and then you had a title match that, that Hogan wins but they're stripping on the title anyways so, right, Jack I mean not only are we going to take more of your money we're really not going to give you anything for it terrible <laughs> idea <laughs> Jack Tunney the ultimate power pooper never got you know yeah, where, right? where was he to strip the honky tonk man when he screwed Steamboat out of the Intercontinental title nowhere but oh I gotta get it I'll out I'll tell you where you were you were, you were there with your hands in your head right, right. 45, 45 minutes of tears uh, yeah. 92, they go back to Richfield and they middle it. They got 17-5 at that show. So not quite as huge as the first one, not as bad as the second. Uh, Bret Hart, is this the first pay-per-view where he, well, it's certainly the first pay-per-view that has him versus Sean for the title, right? Or has Right, 12... that was champion versus champion. And it's funny that, you know, again, look at the wrestling landscape. You're, you're coming off this, I mean, amazing match to close the show. Granted, they're in England, right? So, you get a lot of Davey Boy Smith, British Bulldog fans. You're in Wembley, and, and, and Davey Boy Smith is riding a high like no other. He beats the Hitman in a, in a great match, so well put together, so well executed. And Bulldog's not even not even there for a return to Survivor Series. you got to go with Sean, A, because guys are leaving the company because of steroid testing, right. and B, Bulldog's gone off WCW too. So uh, Brett Sean, it was good, but um, yeah, it was missing that oomph. 
And again, those title or champion versus champion matches, unfortunately, and we're going to see this on Sunday night in the Star Series, they're almost designed to devalue someone's title, right? Because, you know, Brett's not going to win the IC belt and have them both. Brock's not going to beat AJ tomorrow and win both titles. The title's on the line. But either way, no matter what you do, something is, someone or something is getting devalued. So that's a, that's a major concern, you know, going back to 92 and, and before that of a champion versus champion. What do you do in that spot? And I think that'll be interesting. That's a modern-day connection. What happens this year at the Survivor Series with all these champion versus champion matches? I would have to think that somebody's title is getting devalued. Right. Well, like even in the Warrior-Hogan match at WrestleMania six, in the commentary, if you listen back, Gorilla and Jesse kind of talk about that, how whoever wins the Intercontinental Belt isn't going to keep it. Like they mentioned that right in the in the commentary, um, but that may, maybe is a case where the Intercontinental Belt is still so strong that yeah, it's not the world title, but okay, we understand why they wouldn't be able to carry both because it's just it's too hard to defend the Intercontinental title on a night in night basis and be the the champion. I think that's kind of how they tried to present it. Like, oh, it's no kind of made the IC champ look have a little more street cred too, in the sense that. The Intercontinental Champion, which you always believe they could, right? Because they always had great IC champs. The Intercontinental Champ just beat the World Champ. You know, Perfect was always a great Intercontinental Champion too. Right. Savage. There were so many great guys that were in that role. That hey, I always believe the IC Champion was better, anyways. So even though the Warrior wasn't that type of you know company workhorse uh, that carried the company with the IC belt matches, but it was kind of nice that it, it, it defended those of us who were in love with what the Intercontinental Title stood for. The 93 show has a, an elimination match back on top. The All-Americans defeated the Foreign Fanatics. What about the names of these teams? Do you have a favorite team Survivor Series team name? Does one stick out in your head? Uh, that's a great question. I was uh, In terms of teams, just like, you know, it went along. I love the Million Dollar Team, even though that's not exactly, uh, you know, the most creative. I mean, they had... Uh, Rowdy's Roddy's and Rude's Brood and so many great ones. But that 89 DiBiase squad was, I thought at the time, unstoppable. You had DiBiase, Virgil in his corner. You had the Powers of Pain with Barbarian and the Warlord. And you had Zeus. I mean, that team, in theory, is unstoppable. And then you had major stars in the the Hulkamaniacs with uh, Hogan, Jake Roberts. And that was Demolition. And you could argue they were the four biggest baby faces in wrestling. And that match is great, too, because the referees, you know, DQ and the, the villains, the, the heels left and right. Jesse Ventura at his finest and his, you know, his anti-Hogan finest. And uh, <laughs> that, that's a really fun match. Uh, team names are, it's too bad they, they didn't continue the team names. That's always fun. But um, maybe Rude's Brood? Rude's Brood or, is, is classic. What's yours? Yeah, that, the Rude's yeah. Brood is, is strong. That's really strong. I don't Before think it. I think that was. That was that was at the Garden in Boston. That was Ludwig Borges, I think, last pay per view because he twisted an ankle before the Rumble. Didn't fight an earthquake. Didn't fight at that following Mania. Yeah, that was definitely his last pay per view. Uh, that was the uh, King's Court. That was uh, Jerry Lawler didn't fight, but it was Brett. You know, the Hart brothers kind of led to that Owen turn against Shawn Michaels again. So there's always always history with Michaels and Hart. Uh, yeah, that that uh, that was a fun Survivor Series. In Boston, and then you had the, the part I remember was Stu Hart, you know, bringing his boys to the ring, and he's wearing that old school Bruins jacket with the bear on it. And I like that. I was a little biased because it's in Boston, but I really like that Survivor Series. One thing that I uh, that sticks out to me about it is the tagline, 
was the Thanksgiving tradition all Americans wait for. And I tr- I tortured my mother with that. You know, <laughs> I was like, it's not the yams. It's not the squash. It's the Survivor Series, Mom. It's not the football. It's not the turkey. Survivor Series. It's the Thanksgiving I'm tradition. I'm sure she was so proud of you. All Americans probably- wait for her. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been so proud of her son. There's probably some some little kids running around now. I mean, Raw was just unbearable on Monday with the idea that this is the only, the Survivor Series is the only time that the Raw brand faces the SmackDown brand. I mean, looking past last month's pay per view and <laughs> obviously the Rumble, they're all they're all intermixed and the Rumble has to be. Um, but it was just like it was. I mean, again, when you're watching the show every week and you get to listen to sometimes the propaganda, that was uh, a bit much because it's. It, not true, but why not true? Again, we're applying logic to an illogical business sometimes, so it doesn't always make sense. doesn't always need to make sense, I suppose. With 30 years of shows, we really can't go through all of them, but I want to mention a few more before I let you go. Uh, obviously, 97 is a big one with the with the screw job. I don't want to spend too much time here because everyone has for hours and hours and hours, but I want to know, did you watch that show live? Were you watching that one live? Yes, watch that live. Okay, so what was your reaction, just in real time? Do you remember? Like, I do actually. I was fourteen, watched with my brother, and I I know that we both thought something. Obviously, we didn't know the magnitude of it, right? Right. But we both knew that the match was short. We expected a long match with those guys. I believe there was still time left to go. There had to be time to go longer. So it ended early. It just seemed very odd. And again, that's what pro wrestling does well, especially you know. We were younger at the time. But if wrestling's done well, there's that air of, of believability to it. So I you know, I think that we definitely bought into it. We thought there was something wrong. But, again, most of the time that's because they're just doing their job really well and it's part of the show and, and they're superstars for a reason. But it just seemed odd the way it went off the air. It seemed odd the finish. If you remember, Michaels takes off quickly. Right. But he does turn around before he goes to the curtain to show off the belt. But then again, he, he could always claim he's saving face just by, you, know, you got to protect the title, you got to protect the company. Um, Hebner, I remember we noticed this right away, Hebner's like the first one, Hebner's the first one out of the ring. Really unique set of circumstances. And I remember trying to find anything I could on America Online that night and the next day because the internet was in its infancy. Uh, wrestling and the internet, man, go could just go hand in hand. So, yeah, I, I do remember that. I, I just started thinking, it seemed like there was something odd, something wrong, something off, but there was no way to prove it. I was just a couple years older than you, and I was watching it, and I remember thinking my first instinct was that was off. Something weird happened there. But my the first, my first theory was, are they going to pin it on Hebner and sort of mirror the way Hogan got screwed from his first title? Because when Hogan lost, you know, when Hogan lost the title for the first time, with the two Hebners, with right, dual right. Hebners, and I thought, you know, because it was just so weird how he didn't even, it seemed like he didn't even give Brett a chance to get in the hold where he called it. So I thought maybe in storyline it'd be something like Hebner going into business for himself, you know. Um, and I thought Great it was point. so weird as the match was going on, why all these people were just coming to the ring and standing around, like why all the. Sudden Ireland. Why was everyone outside the ring? Right. They, there was enough to that storyline. People say, "Oh, it's you know, it was it was manu- excuse me, it was manufactured." But um, there was enough in the storyline where Brett was visibly upset with Vince 
Brett was leaving the company, and that was public knowledge. Um, not like it would be in 2017, it was in 1997, but I don't know. I guess I didn't question that. I wasn't overly skeptical of Vince being ringside. It's a title match. To me, this felt more important. Crazy night. I was obviously wrong with my theory, but that was my, my gut. I was at Survivor Series 98. It's one of the two kind of historic shows I've been to. Survivor Series 98 and WrestleMania 6. Well, and if you want to count the devastation of the house show taping or the TV we taping. We can add that on the list. Right, well, okay. Yeah. So then I guess three big ones in my lifetime. But uh, the the Rock, it's his first championship win, which is, I guess, the real history of this. It's one of two times they did a whole pay-per-view tournament, right, WrestleMania 4 in this. I don't think they've done one since where a whole show is just a championship tournament, have they? Did I miss one? I don't believe so. No, I don't I think think. that was the one. Yeah. That was the first. So, yeah. yeah, so that was, I mean, that's huge, right? The Rock, I mean, you look back at a couple of the title changes here. It's the first time Undertaker wins a championship. Is that is that Survivor Series? The first time Rock wins the championship. Is that Survivor Series? So that's kind of cool. Yeah, and, and even I, I know that it, again, didn't age well, and it was such a short, short title run. But the fact that Bob Backlund, after the historic run he had the first time around, and it's not a good match, and it's you know it's designed for, for, for Owen Hart and for eventually Kevin Nash Diesel to win the belt, and Owen to, to turn you know on his brother and feud with Brett. But back to winning the title again in '94, that's a that's a big moment too. Right. Uh, looking back, the fact that he it's in 1988, I don't think we ever thought Bob Backlund would ever be WWF champion again, or even at WrestleMania. It was WrestleMania nine in Vegas. Who would have ever thought you know that match with Razor that was terrible? With Scott Hall, Backlund's a future WWE champion again. Right. There'd be no way. But somehow they made they made they made that into something. I wonder if uh, Big Show, if this is his first title win in '99. I don't know if he had it had it before or not. Uh, someone probably is, knows that off the top of their head that's listening, but could have been. What uh, was the question? First Big Show in '99 wins the title at the Survivor Series. I, I wonder if that was his first. That time. was his first WWE yeah. title. Yeah, that was his first. Yep. Yep. So there's three. Three pretty big guys who won their first one at the uh, at Survivor Series, um, and you had the Shield debut in 2012. You had, I, I think, one of the cooler Survivor Series moments ever. It's hard to say the greatest because that's so subjective, and you try to try to steer clear EST thinking because you know everything means something different to, to everyone. But but I loved 2014 in St. Louis. That Sting debut I thought was so well done. Awesome, yeah. I, was I mean if you could if you could debut that Sting character any way you want and do it the right way like they they hit the nail on its head they got it right Sting was it was perfect the the authority lost um, you know Ziggler tripping tripping his arm over for the win it was just so well done you know I think I would have I don't know how much if you gave me odds to gamble that night that Sting would have won a major match at Mania the following year I never would have thought. That uh, at the time that he would have lost to Triple H or anyone for that matter. Uh, it's funny to think where Sting started and, and where he ended in WWE, but that night in 2014 was was phenomenal and just a great kind of uh, a great surprise with Cena going out when and how he did. I thought that was really well yep, done in, I, that, in that match too. Actually, kind of an underrated pay per view. Uh, 2014, I thought it was very well done. Yeah, in 2002 was the first Elimination Chamber match that they ever had. That's right. 
So, man, we're going through these cards, and just so many firsts have happened at Survivor Series. Kind of plays to your point. Even I believe the first table spot was the uh, 95 Survivor Series. Brett goes through a table really in a smart, laid-out, logical spot. Kevin Nash throws Brett through a table, which I think was the first WWE use of a table. Yeah, I think so I, I've heard that, too. Yeah, so much. Even 96, you know, Sid winning the belt. It's the birth of Steve Austin is Stone Cold, really, with... Uh, with the Bret Hart match, I mean, putting him on the map. Um, and that was that was obviously Rocky Maivia, too, with MSG. There's so much, so much history with the Survivor Series. Now, I think a majority of people, I'm going to get this show up tonight on Saturday, but I think a majority of the people who will listen to this will listen to it after they've either watched Survivor Series or heard about what has happened. Um, but quickly... If we were going to do this in 10 years, just as a guess, what do you think might be something historical, if, if anything, we would look back on this show coming up uh, with some kind of fondness to? Is there is there anything... Considering when we were taking into consideration that we're still here, you know, that, that Trump didn't get us in... Uh, all <laughs> right, kinds of, we right. There's, there hasn't years. been any kind of uh, doomsday or anything like that. All right, that's, that's good news. Then. He just serves his four years and moves on with his life, and so do all of us. And I assume the apprentice would be even even bigger box office uh, after the presidency. <laughs> right. So imagine. where are we? In- so let's just say we're ten yeah. years down the road. We've already, we've had a, a maybe a, a, a Democrat takeover. Then maybe we got another Republican, and we're all as crazy as we've ever been, and divided as we've ever been. But we're still here. And and uh, what President, President Dwayne Johnson's in office? Sure. <laughs> I have no idea what his political yeah. affiliation would be. I'd assume Democrat. I don't know why, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what do we look back on this show? What's significant about it, do you think? This Sunday's or the Star Series in general? You can do both. I like both. Again, I think that Survivor Series will go down in history. The pay-per-view itself, it's number two. And I think that's that's so iconic because you can only have one number one, right? And that's right. definitely WrestleMania. And this literally was the second pay-per-view, Steve. But, uh, again, it just played a second fiddle to to all the major moments of Mania, and then eventually would be surpassed by SummerSlam, eventually surpassed by the Royal Rumble, and then again, it's subjective, but I, I think Money in the Bank is probably a little more meaningful now, even though the, the timing of Star Series is important because, you know, it does set the table for for the road to Mania. Uh, for this fun, and, and, and again, I guess two parts to that answer, and it just is, is the perfect embodiment of Vince McMahon trying to crush his opponent, you know, with the whole Starcade history and, um, yeah, there wasn't room in Vince's mind for, for two companies. There was only room for his. Uh, for Sunday's show, and again, this is Saturday afternoon, I'm excited. I'm excited for, for NXT tonight. I think the, the return of the war games. War games, yeah. Especially with a Vince McMahon, you know, kind of uh, some Vince DNA will be memorable. I don't know if that'll be good, great. I, I like the talent in the match. NXT needs a boost. We'll see if that can do it. And I'm excited for the show. I really am. I, I Call me crazy. I'd love to see Biggie pin Roman Reigns. Like I'd love to see Biggie. You know, we're always talking about who's the next guy, who can they sign, who can they develop. Biggie is a world champion, in my opinion. You can't get baby faces. You can't get a crowd to cheer for a baby face. You get Biggie, who's just talented, charismatic, legitimately laugh out loud, funny guy, who the crowd likes. Like as who he is right now. He's to me des- should be destined to be world champion. Interesting. So I hope we see a big moment there with the New Day and the Shield where we kind of, you know, 
put a rocket on, on Big E. I hope we see. I don't know. I mean, I, there's so many great matchups in that Raw SmackDown match. I just hope it's fun, right? I just hope the way WWE book shows now, it's memorable moments. You know, how many memorable moments can you have? And, and they're normally pretty good at it, right? They're normally pretty good at, like, I remember these six different moments throughout the card. Um, so I'm excited. In, are we going to get, you know, some time with, I don't know, does Jinder Mahal interfere in the world title match? Does, where does see how does Cena play into all this? Do we get some fun interviews before? I just think the what memorable moments will there be? And I think that'll be the, the uh, that that's what, to me, this, this pay-per-view comes down to. Um, TLC was good because it had some cool, memorable moments. I'm curious what they have in store for us tomorrow night. Uh, Brock, AJ, I just hope they don't devalue either one of those world titles. But um, I almost wish they were both on the line. And then either way, you get a cool story, right? You get Brock with both titles, Styles to somehow win it back, or get it back, or I don't know. I wish um, I wish the title matches actually had the titles at stake. But right. I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm, I, I haven't been excited in a while for the review to be alive because I was very excited for the uh, the last TLC show. I love watching Kurt Angle in the ring. I hope he's safe, but I hope it's on a great show. So yeah, I'm really excited for for the Survivor Series. Well, Justin Barrasso is on Twitter at Justin Barrasso B A R R A S S O, and his column on. SportsIllustrated.com is usually Wednesdays. Is that right? This week in wrestling is Wednesdays. The week in wrestling runs every Wednesday. We will have our 99th straight week this week, and we'll uh, open with the Daniel Bryan interview. The following week will be our hundredth consecutive week, and we'll have the Nature Boy Ric Flair uh, leading off the column of the big show on that one as well. So uh, we're excited to celebrate weeks 99 and 100. All right. Very last thing, I'm going to let you out of here on this. It was fun talking Survivor Series, but I have to know. Give me your top three or four right now wrestling podcasts that you listen to. Ones that are, you know, about – not that they maybe talk wrestling once in a while like, like we're doing, but like actual, you know, wrestling podcasts. What are your – it's a crowded space right now, right? So what are your – Absolutely. Give me your kind of top three. An over, it's an overcrowded space. Top three would be something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. And I think part of it's nostalgia, probably, and then part of it I just enjoy listening to them, uh, with them, along with along for the ride. I always listen to Jim Ross, and I always always listen to Steve Austin. I think when Austin talks wrestling, you know, when he really gets into it, and it's funny, he'll say, "I haven't watched in a while, but I, I caught 20 minutes last night," and he'll rattle off like six incredible details. Like, how did I not see that in that way? Um, I mean, it's just interesting to hear a guy who was on top of the wrestling world basically put the company on his shoulders. Uh, there's like two guys who did that and did it in the same fa- similar fashion as Hogan and Austin. So to hear his insights, so cool. And then uh, I like Jim Ross. I think Jim Ross is a really in- entertaining podcast, interesting. Um, those are my probably top three. But Do you have a Dark Horse I'll one? Around. I hear, if I hear of a good interview or an interview that I'd like to hear or try to listen to as much as possible. Do you have either like a fan one or a Dark Horse one or something you listen to that isn't? you know, the top guy type ones? Like the sportscasters? No, I, a wrestling podcast. Um, yeah, there's, um, I feel like there's so many. I know, that's, that that's the thing. I was wondering if you ones that are, um, separated one from the pack. I have a couple I yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll suggest. Uh, sometimes that's not, the, but I'll listen to the MLW guys. I like um, Robert Carpolis, the uh, gentleman from MLW who runs Creative-ish. Uh, he's really funny. 
that's a subscriber one for uh for the MLW network. Um Cornets here and there. I mean there's just so many. Every now and again Jerry Lawler's but it's hard to um yeah, it's hard to just pick one or two. There's just so many good ones. Let me throw out a couple for you. Maybe you'll check them out. Maybe you won't. But Place to Be Nation, they have a, a flagship show. We're there right now. They started in 85, and they're going through the WWF chronologically by MSG shows, Saturday Night's Main Events, and pay-per-views. Amazing. They actually, I've listened to their Mania recaps. And they, those guys are really, really good. Yeah, and I, I love what – I mean, that's my favorite era. So, I mean, I've been loving – I mean, the context you get, especially for those first couple manias, is really good. And then I really like – on their wrestling-only feed, they have some – they have a greetings from Allentown. It's a guy from Boston, a Bruins season ticket holder uh, who does it. And uh, that's a really cool show. He does, like, our – random hour wrestling TV shows over the years. And all by himself, he just – Somehow fills an hour and twenty five minutes talking about the show. What, and what show is that called? It's called Greetings from Allentown. Oh, that's interesting. I I'll check that out for sure. Yeah, and then there's one other one I kind of like. It's called Our Vantage Point, and uh, it's two guys, and they they do their gimmick. Their main thing is they do a uh, Death Valley and Mount Rushmore of various wrestling topics. Um, so that one can be fun too. So I like those three, but great great name too. Yes. No affiliation, Danny. I'm just throwing those out as ones that I enjoy. I don't know those guys or anything like that. Just on the internet. Justin, thank you so much uh, for doing this. I went a little bit longer than I asked. I'm sorry about that. Uh, that was fun. I, are we recording still? Yeah, we're still recording. But we can yeah, not be I, I anymore a, if we'd like. Yeah. No, I had a pleasure, and uh, I'd be grateful to come back anytime. Thank Justin Barrasso and Mike Triplett for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and all episodes of the Sportscasters on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, wherever you find podcasts. If you're looking for it somewhere and it's not there, let me know, and I will try to fix that. You can also follow me on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, or email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. There's a new episode this week. Of the Lonely End of the Ring podcast, also on Apple Podcasts, at Lonely Ring Pod on Twitter for more info on that. And the Motivation Through Music podcast will be new on Monday. And for more information on that, it's at M through M Pod on Twitter. All right, one last thing for the show today. So the show has had an interesting 2017, right? We never really got into a groove here. Usually we do closer to 40 episodes, where this year we're going to do closer to 30. That's a big difference. Uh, and part of the reason has been Paula. I have more responsibility just in Paula. I also have two other podcasts I have to be responsible to. The Hockey Podcast and, to some degree, the Motivation Through Music Podcast. But the Sportscasters is always going to be my show, right? This is... I started this in 2011, and I love doing it, and I love doing it with Don. And one sad thing about this year so far has been 
that I haven't been able to do as many with him as I'd like to, uh, because he also has many uh, real-life responsibilities uh, and things that have made it uh, difficult for him to get here. He has a new job, uh, so his just his commute here is totally different than it was the entire rest of the history of the show. Uh, so it's been difficult, but the show still exists. And as I look ahead, I think it will always exist in some form. I mean, maybe if Don says in 2018, he doesn't want to be a part of this anymore. Uh, maybe it will be just a show where I do one interview a week or one interview every other week or one a month. I have no idea, but I, I think it will always be something. Uh, one thing I know it'll never be is more popular or profitable or anything like that. I think that ship has sailed. We had some chances, some opportunities earlier. We had a contracted show that we did with footballnation.com. Uh, we almost set it up on Sirius before the whole channel itself went away. Poof, just like that. That chance was gone. We had the huge show that blew up in Guns N' Roses land because of Duff McKagan being on and basically talking for the first time since the band was announced in the Hall of Fame. And then, of course, we were named one of Sports Illustrated's best podcasts in 2014. And the truth is that in 2011, when Peter King came on the show, he didn't know what a podcast was. And now in 2017, not only does he have one, but so does everyone else. And people who listen to this show in 2014, they might have 10 other shows that are more important to them now. I mean, even my brothers certainly are more interested in pardon the take than they are this show, that's for sure. My mom, I don't think, listens anymore. You know, maybe to some degree the sportscasters has suffered from, and maybe it's run its course for people, you know. But for me, it hasn't. For me, the, the, the need to talk to these people who write or report or broadcast these events, is, it's still fun. And it doesn't cost me much or anything like that. It's not hard to do. So why not do it? I don't know if it'll ever be, you know, a, f a season that we do 45 episodes or something like that. That might be, that might be gone. But I don't know. I guess it's a little bit of a state of the union. I love the show. I love the sportscasters. I love to do it. I love talking to people like Justin, who was so cool to me today. You know, or Mike Triplett gets to just geek out on the Saints for 35 minutes. I don't know if a hundred or a thousand people listen. Who cares? It doesn't matter. I don't track that. It just doesn't matter to me. It means nothing. I, mean, I think 10,000 should listen, but they don't and they won't. There's not, not much I can do about it. I'm out of ideas, I guess, in that sense, right? I mean, if there was something I could do to build an audience, I would have done it. When this season started, I reached out to people hoping to to help promote the show, but Man, as much as I've done for other people, they are not interested in doing anything for me. So, yeah. That's not sour grapes either because they were never expected to, right? Just coming on here has been enough. But I love the, the sportscasters. The sportscasters will always exist. But it will probably never be like it was again in 2012 when we had episodes with three guests. That's probably never going to happen again. And then the next week had an episode with three more probably just don't have time to be that ambitious uh, but i love the show and i always will
made my choice Held out to my big two-wheeler I was tired of my own voice Took a beat on the northern plains And just rolled that power on Say a thing. 